Hi everyone, it's Kesonga. Just a reminder that you can listen to all of our podcasts ad-free on the Headspace app. I love TV. Dating shows, baking contests, political dramas, scandy crime, makeover shows. They are my not-at-all-guilty pleasures. During lockdown, it got to the point where sometimes I felt like I had watched all of TV. My partner would try and find something for us to watch together, and I'd be like, nope, seen that. Nope, done that one. Sorry, already watched it. There were moments when it felt like I was marking time by episodes and seasons rather than hours or days. One particular show really captured my imagination. It's a sin. The official history of the world says that men like us have always been hidden away in secret, but then there's the real world where we've been living together for all this time. That British miniseries about a group of friends in the 1980s whose lives are changed by the HIV-AIDS epidemic. I can't believe it, though. No, but don't, don't, don't no, really come here. No, you can't touch me because I'm bleeding. It did that thing that great entertainment does. It helped me not only understand the past and present in new ways, but to feel it. To empathise with people leading lives very different from my own, and to care deeply about strangers. And I wasn't alone. The show was a hit, not just here in the UK, but in America too. I ended up following all the main characters on Instagram and obsessing over the show's memes. And it's striking that over the pandemic, the ways we've gathered and connected has often been through TV, like I May Destroy You, Love is Blind and Tiger King. We empathised, cried, laughed, and made sense of the weirdness of it all through these shared stories. Now, being glued to a screen during a 21st century pandemic following the hashtag of your favourite reality show on Twitter might feel like a long way from being gathered around a fire listening to a storyteller, but actually it's not. Throughout the history of our species, story has played a central role to human society. And as we spend this last hour together before graduating from the Longtime Academy, we'll see that stories play a huge part in getting long time. The question is, how? Author Jeremy Lent has a few ideas. Something that I think is crucial to understand about what we're like as human beings is that we have what I call the patterning instinct. And it's this instinct to make sense out of the sort of chaotic stuff that happens all around us. Millions of years ago when humans separated from other primates, we had to sort of try to figure out ways to work together in the savannah and a very changeable environment. And we developed what's kind of known as a social intelligence, this intelligence to connect up with others, to make meaning out of all the complexity going on around us in society. 
this part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex developed certain sort of extreme capabilities of this need to pattern the meaning into things around us. If we didn't do that, we wouldn't be able to actually work socially with others and, and really kind of thrive in community. It's like a first day in the office in a new job. We go in there, we're instantly trying to make sense out of things, like who's up, who's down, how are things said, what is not said. And that's our patterning instinct at work, trying to understand so we can optimize for ourselves in whatever environment we're in. The key implication of the fact that humans are driven by this patterning instinct is that we're incredibly malleable. That is why stories are so important, because the stories are the ways in which we make sense of all the kind of stuff that otherwise would feel meaningless to us. Probably the best way to get a sense of this is to look at a lot of work that's been done in an area called cognitive linguistics, where people have studied how we actually use language to make sense of things around us. And a foundational insight is that actually we use metaphors to come up with any kind of conceptual understanding of anything around us. Metaphors are very closely related to stories, if you will, but the metaphors we use are really given to us by our culture. Culture gives each of us a lens with which to see the world, and we're so used to it, we don't realize it's actually a lens. But these metaphors are foundational in how we make sense of the world. For 95% of human history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers. And their core metaphor that they used to look at nature was to see nature as like a giving mother or father. If you have that as a foundational metaphor, certain things then make intuitive sense. Creatures around you are part of your family. If nature is your mother and father, then all of nature is part of something that your mother and father have created, so it has dignity and value in itself. The biggest shift probably in all of human history came with the rise of agriculture and sedentism. People settled down and began to see nature as separate. They put up fences to separate the wilderness from what was cultivated. They also separated themselves from others, and so hierarchies and inequalities began to arise in the human experience. All this just in the last 10,000 years. And these hierarchies formed the foundation for a new story about the universe, a story of a hierarchical set of gods that you had to kowtow to and sacrifice to and pray to if things were going to work out right. That's how almost all major civilizations made sense of the world for thousands of years until 2,500 years ago. The ancient Greeks, for the first time, there was this sense of a split universe. This is called dualism. The sense that there's kind of two different dimensions to reality, some sort of fixed eternal dimension where there was divinity up above and then this kind of messy, polluted, material world separate from that other dimension. 
And then with the scientific revolution, with Descartes onwards, people see themselves as being a separate mind and body rather than one integrated organism, which led to a whole different way of making sense of the universe, is more of the universe as a machine or a resource to be exploited. And if we look at our culture today, it tells us basically some of these core elements of this metaphor of nature as a machine. It tells us that humans are separate from nature, that nature has no intrinsic value of its own, that it's just a resource to be exploited. It tells us that each of us as humans are primarily essentially individuals and separate from other humans and other people. And so as a result of that, our purpose in the world is just to get rich and have as big status as possible for us and our family at the expense of others. And it tells us that even nature is like that, that we're driven by selfish genes. For us to be selfish and competitive is in our nature. That's what the modern story tells us. One reason why it's very difficult for us to shed the harmful stories that we have all around us is that a worldview is something that we don't even realize that we have until we notice it. So the first thing we can do is really begin to be aware of our underlying preconceptions from the core story of our dominant culture and realize that there's another way of making sense of things. When we look at what's going wrong with the world right now, we're headed really at an accelerating pace towards destruction if we don't turn our trajectory around. A lot of people feel we don't have time to change the sort of fundamentals. It's a little bit like people working on a computer system, trying to fix this bug and that bug. And then imagine somebody comes along and says, you know what, we have to change the operating system itself. And everyone says to this person, we don't have time for that. We've got to like fix the bugs right now. But it's when you change the operating system, everything can then be designed in a way that it can relate to itself far more harmoniously. It's not enough to just try to fix a few things within the same framework. We actually have to change the way we make sense of the world. We, essentially, we have to change the operating system of our culture. Stories as the operating system of our world. That's not normally how we think of them. Instead, we often think of stories as benign, fluffy, childlike things. But as Jeremy explains, story is actually foundational. It is a technology that determines our collective direction of travel, and that's something we've seen repeatedly in our time together at the Academy. We've heard how our economy is based on a story, the myth of rational economic man, and a fantastical goal of never-ending growth. We've heard how time itself is a story, one used by empire to control and destroy, and how the very purpose of Western politics is based on a particular story that hasn't included future generations at all. It's clear, story shapes our world. The ways in which the culture shapes us are so profound and pervasive. 
The best way that I've come to understand it is to think, if you will, about a fish swimming in the ocean. I often think about Nemo because I'm obsessed with pop culture. This is Bridget Antoinette Evans. She runs the Pop Culture Collaborative in New York, an organization that focuses on how culture can shift our world into a better place. So I think about this little fish doing fish things in the ocean and going to school because that's what Disney fish do. Talking to friends and checking in with his father and what that fish is not doing is swimming around saying, this is water, water is all around me. And in the same way, we are immersed in narrative environments. We call them narrative oceans. And just like the fish, we move through our days and we engage with all manner of content and experiences that are absolutely influencing and shaping how we make decisions, how we choose to behave, how brave we are or cowardly we are, how cruel we are, how loving we are in the world. And that's culture that swirls all around us. And some of it is created by artists and other media makers, created for large, large groups of people, millions and millions of people who are engaging in the same experiences. We consider that to be popular culture. But culture more broadly includes not only the television and the film and books and the radio programs, podcasts, all of these things that we engage with every day. Culture also includes the experiences that we're immersed in within our homes, within our schools, within our communities. And all of those things swirl together to create an immersive kind of surround sound environment in our lives. The tricky thing is that we are currently, at least in the U.S., we are currently immersed in a number of narrative oceans that are particularly toxic. They are telling us to make meaning in ways that are actually eroding our humanity and the humanity of others. They are destabilizing our sense of self, our self-esteem, limiting our imagination, not allowing us to see far into the future and understand what is possible if we use our creativity and innovation to get there. And so the question of how we do this, how we change the narrative oceans that we swim in is is really the biggest question of our field of the pop culture for social change field in the U.S. right now. I actually think media that is created with the desire to bring momentum to justice and social change is a really great example of how artists and organizers and movements are constantly evolving and innovating. So if you look, for instance, at what was happening just even 10 years ago within the marriage equality movement here in the U.S., really visionary leaders like Rashad Robinson, who used to be the head of programs at GLAAD, but is now the, the president of Color of Change, one of the largest racial justice organizations in the world, 
he and others had the vision to say pop culture has a role to play in helping people move out of bigotry into belonging. They didn't just create, you know, PSAs. They actually went and sat down with some of the most talented storytellers in Hollywood who actually understand deeply how character works, how plot and suspense works, how you create a sense of real revelation and awakening in people through their immersion in a story. What you see when you analyze all of the pop culture content that was created by artists during the main marriage equality fight between like 2009 and 2014 is that the narrative journey of a father from, I don't know you, you're not my son, I can't accept you for who you are, to the love for family is more important than my fear or bigotry. That art was played out again and again in modern family, in films, in advertisements. You know, Glee was one of the most watched shows on television at that time. Dad, I have something that I want to say. I'm gay. I know. I've known since you were three. That modeling of behavior was incredibly significant. What does the sort of hard and delicate work of belonging together in a just society look like? What does that mean? How do I have to live? How does that change my assumptions about relationships? What do I need to learn? I guess I'm not totally in love with the idea, but if that's who you are, there's nothing I can do about it. And I love you just as much. If we cannot see it, if we cannot imagine it, we cannot become it. Thanks for telling me, Kurt. When you look at the the course of history, the artist's imagination almost always leads, right? The artist is often the person who says, I see beyond the horizon, let me tell you what I've seen. Of all the thousands and thousands of books written about art and culture, there are only a few dozen books written about what it actually does and why it exists at all. This is musician, activist and foundational longtime thinker Brian Eno, who we met in part two. For decades, he has been using art, music and pop culture to ask questions about the kinds of societies we want to live in. I have this feeling that we use art as a way of externalizing our thinking processes and making our thoughts communicable to other people and shareable with other people. Art is really an area of feelings. I was on a bus a couple of years ago and sitting behind me were two ladies talking about EastEnders they'd seen last night. For those listeners not familiar with EastEnders, it's a bit of a cultural institution here in the UK. It's a BBC soap opera set in London's East End that's been running for over 35 years. On that episode of EastEnders, somebody had come out and said she was gay. And these ladies were discussing this in very thorough terms, all sorts of questions, sort of investigating how they felt about something because they were not involved with any of the characters. It was a myth. It's a very important 
way to understand the world that we live in, this complicated world of new things happening to us, things that don't really have rules, or the rules appearing to change. How do we feel about these changes? Are we behind them? Do they threaten us? This is actually what fiction can do. It offers you a place to think about things without having a particular investment in them. And that's one of the ways we examine the world. And in fact, science does it as well. Science models things. They call it modeling there. But I think culture is world modeling. What culture does so uniquely is it allows us to go there, to try out ideas, scenarios and concepts that we otherwise have no way of experiencing, all the time held by the safety net of our imagination. And Anab Jain, co-founder of design studio Superflux, knows this better than anyone. We are not rational Newtonian creatures. We are biological beings. We think with our hearts and our bodies. And that's where stories really help us. It's stories and our communities and our myths and our folklore that really have driven us as a society to where we are today. We have somehow, in the last hundred years, carved out this extreme division between the rational and the scientific mind and the emotional responses and the rational and the scientific data-led work always takes lead whilst the emotional feeling-based work is seen as whimsy. Imagining is actually really hard. You know, when you talk about climate change, it's like What does that mean? What can I do? Every little thing I do doesn't seem to count. How on earth am I supposed to understand this big amorphous abstract thing? To make imagining easier, Superflux, who describe themselves as archaeologists of the future, create immersive experiences designed to transport us into the futures we might have a hard time picturing. Imagine that there is a future in which we have experienced vast amounts of climate change and extreme weather events. There is food shortages and economic instabilities and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, the question is, what food will we eat in this future? A simple question which matters to everybody. What food will we get to eat in the future? Created to explore those questions... One of Superflux's most iconic works has been an immersive art installation called Mitigation of Shock. Food supply chains are facing a prolonged period of disruption after a series of extreme weather events hit harvests in much of Asia and Europe. We created an apartment set in London around 2050 or thereabouts when my son would be around my age. You walk in, you see a sofa, you see a kitchen, you see a dining table and chairs, you see clothes, kids' toys, drawings, magazines, books, utensils, and so on. And people would open the door and peek in. They feel like they've entered someone's home. It feels familiar. And then as they turn around the corner, they see that almost all of the living space has been given up for food production and consumption and they realize that they are in a different world. 
He'll walk to the kitchen and see all these like crazy contraptions with LED lamps and purple oozing fog and mycelium growing in chili plants and spirulina bubbling away, a recipe for fox creole and a kind of fox skin hanging loosely over a chair. And then they turn around and look outside the window and it's a completely retrofit London with loads of windmills and a familiar yet different London. That experience of walking into somebody's home and piecing together these archaeological evidences, if you like, from the future, gave people and a story about one possible future, and it was left to their interpretation what story they made out of it. A lot of people found it extremely dystopian, and they were really upset that this could be a future where you would have such extreme food shortages, you were kind of obliged to grow a lot of your food indoors because of extreme weather outdoors. Then there were people who felt extremely hopeful that, wow, it looks like there's a happy, thriving family here with a small child. And they seem to be adapting in ways that people would have otherwise found hard to imagine. That is a level of immersiveness that works really well because that dissonance makes you not only question and confront your fears, but it also shows that we have the tools that we need to make those changes today. But we are often told that our work is a bit whimsical. It's, it's you know, it's fanciful. It's not important enough because I'm not pointing to a big, large data set and saying this is how you should carve out a policy. There's one particular superflux experience that demonstrates the very real power of creativity in making the future feel more tangible. We were invited a few years ago by the Ministry of Energy and the Prime Minister's office from the government of United Arab Emirates to help them define their 2050 energy strategy. What they had was five scenarios from business as usual to the fifth one being very extreme around full net zero, carbon zero, like, you know, no negative emissions, which was a huge lifestyle change for people there. We were interested in understanding what is it that is going to move the Prime Minister to make a big decision when all the data and all the policy suggests that he would go for something that's kind of medium, medium-level investment that makes everyone look happy, everyone feel happy, everyone feel like something's being done, but not quite enough. So we created this large kind of experiential vision of this world. We created this very shiny crystal city of the future, something that they really like. In that city model, we brought to life how the world might change if they invested large amounts in renewable energy. So I was talking and sharing this physical model with the ministers from the cabinet and the prime minister and, and various leaders of energy companies. And then one of them told me, I cannot imagine that we will accept this level of public transport. We love our cars. I mean, I can't even tell my own son to stop driving his car. 
And we were kind of very prepared for this reaction. So I walked those people over to this little kind of glass beaker that looks like straight out of a chemistry lab, which had an ultrasonic sensor on it. And I pressed this button and it emitted this really noxious air out. And this was an approximate sample of what the air would be like in 2036 if their behavior hadn't changed. It immediately brought home the point that no amount of data can, that if you do not invest large amounts of money in renewable energy, your children and grandchildren will be breathing this really noxious, toxic air. And so a few days later, they announced, I think, 76 billion dirhams in renewable energy, which was way more than was expected. And I don't want to take full credit for that kind of large investment, but I think that kind of immersive experience might have tipped the balance. The whole concept of environmentalism really centers around the possibility of imagining futures. And one of the best ways of imagining futures is culture, art. This is why I think it's so important. It's the feeling part that makes the future, actually. We're told more and more that schools are cutting down on music courses and art and so on. That's all now seen more and more as sort of gravy, the luxury bit. The important bit is STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. That's where the work gets done. I really think this is a fundamental social error that we're making in thinking that the part of us that deals with how we feel about things is less important. It's the feeling part that makes the future. Let's hold on to this idea of the role of art in helping us feel things about the future as we travel to the Firth of Forth, a fjord created in the last ice age where the North Sea meets the eastern coast of Scotland. On the bank of this vast estuary overlooking the waters sits a studio, and in that studio is Katie Patterson, an artist whose work I'm so excited to share with you. I think art can be a really powerful way of communicating with each other in a a very different kind of language, like a language that goes to the heart. And often I kind of think, goodness, am I just coming across as really kooky? And then you think, well, actually, that's what we need to get kooky. You know, we we need to embrace these other ways of thinking. Look where the supposed rationality has got us. It's a disaster. I've never been particularly interested in making artwork about myself. I've maybe felt more of a responsibility to engage with ideas beyond myself. I actually published a monograph and rather than organising my works through, you know, the, the normal kind of chronology, I organised them through the time embodied in each artwork. Streetlight storm was a fraction of a second, the time taken for lightning strikes to transmit into light. 
I work with deep time and space and light and nature. One second, the duration of a phone call to a glacier. Two seconds, the duration of a sound of a star dying. And then it kind of moves through time to 4,223 hours, which is the duration of Mercury's day and night. So I've always been drawn to yeah, working with sand and glaciers and meteorites, and materials that really have a like direct embodied relationship to nature and to time. And so I'm always making artwork that's kind of reaching outwards, connecting hopefully with people and place. And finally, right at the end, is the, the infinite, which is history of darkness, the time span of darkness. And so as you read the book, you're kind of traveling through time. One of Katie's biggest artworks is called Future Library. She started making it in 2014 and is very unlikely to see it completed in her lifetime. So Future Library is the longest artwork that I've ever and probably will ever make and it spans 100 years. It is a forest growing in Norway and I've planted a thousand trees which in the year 2114 will be cut down and pulped and made into a book. So every year we commission a new author to write an entirely new piece of work. It can be a short story, a novel, uh, anything they choose, any word count. So Margaret Atwood was our first author. Any book is always a communication across space and time. This one is just a little bit longer. Then David Mitchell. It is an intimidating prospect because Margaret Atwood went first. Then Sean. There will be elements in the text that I think contribute to the future library itself. Elif Shafak. You do trust that there will always be a need for the art of storytelling. Han Kang, Carlo Wieknausgaard, and this year Ocean Vong. And most of the authors are not yet born. It's asking authors to write texts that won't be received in their lifetime. And that's something quite unusual for authors to not hear a word of criticism or response. So they're kind of placing their faith as well in this future audience. The authors come every year. We take a walk through the forest. Every year, for the next 99 years, we will meet here. A simple ritual at the heart of the future library. They bring their manuscripts and then we have a ceremony. Oh yes, the title reveal. Yes, the title reveal. It's the only part that you will know for a hundred years. <laughs> the title is Scribbler Moon. It gives you a lot of room for speculation. You know, being in the forest is really special, of course, but you don't have to be there. It's also an artwork that can take place in your imagination, you know, because the words, nobody sees them. It's, it's sort of just engaging with that concept and, you know, even wandering through in a local forest, you can kind of imagine words growing through them. So it's a very long, slow, unfolding artwork that involves those living and writing now, the, the authors of this moment and the unborn generation, the, the authors to come and the audiences. And I think people connect to it because it's talking about the generation just beyond us. And in a way, it's kind of building a bit of a bridge between us and them, whoever they might be. 
opening the first pages, reading the first words of Margaret Atwood. And saying, like, we see you, we respect you. There's a place for you. Giving them respect for being there and saying, we've made something for you and it's not an environmental disaster or something else. So it's all about kind of what we receive, we give back. Hi, my name is Sam, and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There are a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some deep breaths with me right now. So let's start by taking a slow, deep breath in and out through the nose. And on your next slow, deep breath, just feel your lungs expanding and contracting as you breathe. Nice. And then bring your attention back to the space that you're in. If you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses and sleep and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. Go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at the checkout. Now back to the show. Let's consider how the future is usually represented on our screens. The bleakness of the road. The terror of children of men. The chaos and violence of Mad Max the uninhabitable Earth in Interstellar. The vision they serve up isn't exactly appealing. The future here is a scary place that it's probably best not to think about. Hollywood has actually done a really incredible, powerful job of telling the story of our future. The problem is, is that that story is largely dystopic. If you close your eyes and you think about it, what you see in our future is environmental wastelands, corrupt corporations who own and control everything, hyper-surveillance, you see war, you see ethnic cleansing, entire populations of black and brown people who don't exist anymore. Hollywood, I think, has to contend with the role that it has played in making that such a clear vision of the future. The role of pop culture in this moment is to do three things. It's kind of the superpowers of pop culture. The first is to help us rewrite the origin story of, of our nation, of, of where we come from. The second is to help us make sense of what the heck is going on right now. And most importantly, the, the work of pop culture is to unlock public imagination about the future. The new stories that we need are ones that show really unequivocally and powerfully 
What would it look like if we actually built a human civilization that was based on human well-being and flourishing within a thriving, regenerated Earth? Those are the stories that we need along with the ones that show the incredible destruction that we're doing right now. So when we want to shift systems, we need stories that show us how the old system is broken and help us to retire it and stories that inspire us and show us how a new system can be and is being formed. Stories can present visions of the future that can either act as beacons drawing us to them or lighthouses helping us avoid them. And crucially, stories can help us cultivate different values that will act as the new operating system. Values like kindness, stewardship, interconnection, kinship and care. And as Jeremy revealed earlier, for most of human history, foundational human narratives were underpinned by these kinds of values. The story has shifted before, and we can shift it back again. I call myself an author and integrator because a lot of my work looks at how we can integrate uh, both science and spiritual traditions and how we can integrate Western modes of thinking with other cultures' modes of thinking. What I began to realize over years of research was that what modern science has begun to unearth over the last few decades is actually the same underlying truth that many ancient traditions have pointed to for millennia, that actually deep down we are all deeply interconnected. We often joke, what will they discover next? We've been trying to tell them this for thousands of years. My name is Sherry Mitchell, Wanahamu Gwasat, Ndaliwisi, Wanahamu Gwasat, Najio Banawabskewi, Pasilda Ndelnobama Gwasus Nilbanawabskewi, Nagakakagus Niltibayak. My family is Bear Clan from the Guabanakieg territory, which is in Maine in the Canadian Maritimes. Sherry Mitchell is an attorney, author, and the creator of a ceremony called Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island. It brings together people from around the world to heal the wounds of colonialism. You know, I work with indigenous peoples from across the Americas, the continent of Africa, all of the Pacific Islands, Vanuatu, the Cook Islands, Fiji, New Zealand. And to be with them is like being with family. We have different stories, but they oftentimes tell the same tale. And what I've witnessed in relation to patterning with Indigenous peoples is there is a form of intuitive knowing about our place within the larger scheme of creation. There is this incredible wisdom passed down from generation to generation to generation, told through song and story and movement through our dances, and we have science now coming to Indigenous peoples with a recognition that the stories that they have been telling have been accurate all along. There have been studies recently of oral traditions of Aboriginal people in Australia. And what those studies have found is that there is an accuracy within those oral traditions that lasts for at least 300 generations they're finding that the stories of the Aboriginal peoples accurately depict what they're finding in the geological record back 10,000 years. When I read recently about this Tree of Life project where they're recognizing the relatedness, the actual 
physical relatedness of all species upon the earth and that the degrees of separation within our DNA are very small, that the ways that we're connected are much more profound than we've ever realized. When I read that, it was affirming for me because the stories that we carry also talk about that type of interrelatedness. When indigenous peoples around the world say we're all relatives or we're all family, they were absolutely right from a scientific basis. In fact, we share our genes with all other living entities around us. A mouse shares about 84% of its genes with us humans. And even a banana shares 44% of its genes with us. We really are all part of the same life force that evolved billions of years ago. And once we realize that, we realize that we actually, at the deepest layers, share something with all of life. Right now, we're facing a time where there's an epidemic of people experiencing incredible loneliness where they once felt connection. And they're thinking that there's something wrong with them. I think that what we're experiencing when we're waking up in the middle of the night with a panic attack is the panic of the trees in the Amazon as they're being burned down. When we are feeling this incredible loneliness that can't be explained, what we're feeling is the loneliness of the last white rhino on the planet who has no one left in their species to connect and communicate with. When we start thinking about the ways that we're being impacted by the consequences of our own actions, rather than looking at that as something being wrong with us, I think we need to see that as something being righted within us. Sink into these feelings of despair because we are now becoming compassionately aware. We are becoming emotionally aware of what is transpiring in the lives of those around us. This is truly the full measure of Pasilda and Delnabamuk of recognizing our connection to all of our relations. We have the opportunity to change the reality that we're living in. And so rather than running from it, meditate with that feeling. Ask, where is this originating? Where is this coming from? The colonial stories of individualism and separation from nature that have shaped the dominant culture are unraveling. Both people and planet are flailing in an existential crisis in every sense of the word. It's like we're becoming aware of just how much has been sacrificed at the altar of these toxic narratives. So if culture is the way we pass on values and wisdom from generation to generation, which stories are the ones you'd like to underpin the lives of all those yet to come? There's a growing awareness that Indigenous people's culture of interconnection has enabled them to survive for millennia, as well as a growing movement to support them in their struggle to survive. One of the things that I find most interesting about this time is the ways that the prophecies from seven generations ago are now coming to fruition. One of the prophecies that I think has 
been highlighted during this time was delivered by Crazy Horse in 1877, which was seven generations past. Crazy Horse delivered this prophecy a stone's throw from where the stand at Standing Rock happened just a few years back. What Crazy Horse said was, Upon suffering, beyond suffering, the red nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world. A world filled with broken promises, selfishness, and separations. A world longing for light again. I see a time of seven generations when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life, and the whole earth will become one circle again. In that day, there will be those among the Lakota who will carry knowledge and understanding of unity among all living things, and the young white ones will come to those of my people and ask for this wisdom. I salute the light within your eyes where the whole universe dwells. For when you are at that center within you, and I am at that place within me, we shall be as one. I think that this is the time that we are living in now. This time when we have so many from the white population who are coming to indigenous people to seek healing, to seek knowledge on many different fronts is a fulfillment of that prophecy. And this is the pathway that I feel has the most hope for leading us back towards life. Right now, it's understandable that the path ahead might not feel very hopeful. The problems we face can seem overwhelming. It can be hard not to fall into the potholes of fatalism and despair. That's why the stories we listen to and amplify are so important. Are they stories that tell us it's too late, that we're doomed, that as humans we are intrinsically destructive to nature? Stories which have the effect of maintaining the status quo? Or are they those much older stories that project us into a much longer, healthier, happier future? In the words of speculative fiction scholar Adrian Marie Brown, who we met in the last episode, Is this story pulling me back? Or... Is this story pulling me forward? When it comes to momentum, it's good to remember that sometimes we can move forward very fast, as Bridget Antoinette Evans points out. So I think one thing that, that's always really important to understand is the difference between sort of the long arc of transformation and the particular sort of real turning point moments that happen over the course of that arc. What are those moments that really crack open possibility and really drive momentum towards that longer term goal? We think about the Black Lives Matter movement as a political or social justice movement, but it is as much a cultural movement as it is political. It is a movement that has succeeded in a very, very short amount of time to mobilize millions and millions of people around the clarity of a single idea, which is that Black lives matter and that our systems, our norms, our rules are not organized to support that core truth. 
What this movement was able to do in this past year was to normalize the fact that that change is inevitable. There's this concept that is known as shifting baseline syndrome, where basically what is assumed to be the kind of default norm actually can change from one generation to the next, where the moral norms that new generations grow up with incrementally get to be so different from their parents' and their grandparents' norms that over just a few generations, we look back at things that people took as acceptable from 100 years ago or more, and we can barely believe it. When Emmeline Pankhurst first set up the Association for Women's Suffrage in the late 19th century, it took years just to get a couple of thousand of women walking in the streets of London to ask for the vote for women. And they were considered to be outlandish. You could lose your status in society. You could lose your job just by being part of a march. These people could never have realized that within just a few decades, the right for women to vote would be accepted as like default standard everywhere around the world. When a few brave people start to look at something that's wrong and get engaged, it begins to create this wildfire of transformation. We now have have dramatically accelerated the pace at which change has happened around Black lives. Now, if you look at the polls, if you were to ask people who are not politically engaged in any traditional way about the need for deep transformation in the sort of unjust, racist systems and structures of this country, most people would agree that that change is needed. That is a turning point. And I see that as an example of how a political or social justice movement needs to be working in tandem with a cultural movement that's actually focused on the realm of imagination. And so, we've arrived in the final chapter of our time at the Academy this year. Class is almost out. Over the course of the last six episodes, you've heard from 40 different longtime practitioners. You've gone deep, deep into the distant past and far future, strengthened your time-traveling muscles, learned new ways to care for future generations, contemplated death, legacy, and the location of the future, explored how our systems came to trap us in the short term and how we can change that. We've asked big questions about whose future are we living in and delved into the importance of radical kinship, of embracing our interconnectedness. We've been through a lot together. And you, you have become not just a longtime scholar, but a longtime practitioner. And as I've been thinking about what might help you next as you continue your longtime journey, I keep coming back to the idea of ritual. And it reminds me of a moment I shared with Marsha Bjornerud, the geologist who spoke about timefulness in episode two. It happened just as we were finishing our conversation. Okay, so 
I wondered if there was any homework that you were able to set for the students, something that they could do to help them get more timeful. I think one thing is to just find a pebble or a rock, pick it up, and start thinking about it not as something that's a mute, inert object, but something that embodies a story, a history of some kind that may not be evident right away, but by learning to read its shape, looking at its texture, you might be able to glean something from it. If you find a very rounded stone, that shape suggests that it's traveled some distance, that it's had all of its rough edges nicked off by tumbling in a stream or maybe by being dragged beneath an ice sheet. If it has large crystals, it's probably something that formed deep in the subsurface and somehow found its way to the surface by erosion. So it's got a memory of living in the, in the deep crust. If it has layers, it's probably a sediment that accumulated at least tens of millions of years ago and has some memory of the atmosphere that existed long before we did. So I think just shifting our sense of a pebble as something that is just an inert object to something that bears a narrative is, is a start. I love the idea that I can feel connected to these stories that span eons through a pebble on my doorstep. And little rituals like this can be so powerful. The role of ritual in connecting us to long-timeism has come up again and again with the people who have joined us at the Academy. There's this belief that rituals are old traditions that cannot be changed. We don't recognize that ritual can be created. Every ritual starts out as a short-term commitment to do something that day, that week, that month, and to repeat it over and over and over again. So can we think about what can we do that is a micro-movement that has relatively painless short-term investment that over the long period of time, these micro-movements will, will create a massive shift in our trajectory. The world of culture, all of that language that we have with each other, the language of style and of taste, you know, there's no survival reasons for cutting your hair one way or another. What that says is really a, a ritualization of certain feelings we have about what kind of world we would like to live in. We live a much more communal life than we think, and it's a much more articulate life than we think. Ritual automatically connects you to a community. Even if you're doing it on your own somewhere, you're expressing your partnership with that group of people to have a kind of common language of feeling by which they can help each other. It's an incredible consolidating force. You know, I, I had this very special experience in Japan some years back at a Shinto shrine. And I think I've been really influenced, actually, without fully realising it, by that ceremonial aspect, because a recent project is uh, incense. I'm making two different incense sticks, one that smells of the first forest on Earth and one that smells of the last forest on Earth. 
My intention is to try to kind of recreate the smell and bridge these different time zones and say, you know, look where we've come from, like these very early trees 380 million years ago. We've evolved from those trees, you know, our DNA is literally a quarter trees. Um, and look where we're going, you know, it's happening so rapidly that we might be losing the richest, most biodiverse place on Earth. The whole piece is a, is a ritual. It's taking place in different times each day, in different locations around Helsinki, in public squares, in people's homes, in the crypt, in the cathedral, in islands, outside, inside. Audiences are gathering together, smelling the scent of the first and the last forest. And it's very ceremonial. We light the candle, we burn the incense, we close our eyes and we smell. Through smelling the first and the last forest on earth, we're kind of brought to those moments in time. The incense sticks burn for 15 minutes each. And so that's almost like a, a kind of meditation sitting. First forest, 385 million years ago in Cairo, a few miles from the Hudson Valley. It was a time before even vertebrates existed. It, it's so it's so long ago that the, we could barely recognise that landscape. It recreates the soil and the, the kind of atmosphere and the climate of that moment. Um, and anything alive in the forest at that time, we've tried to transform into scent. Wet grass, hay, stream water running through clay mud, rotting vegetation swamp humidity, quartz sandstone, fungi, moss, and finally, quiet. The rain and wind and the vegetation would have been the only sounds. And then the last forest on Earth recreates the Amazon, where the biodiversity loss is so grave, you know, we, it's been described that the Amazon can be the last living rainforest in our lifetimes, which is so short. We've worked with the Tipitini Biodiversity Station in Ecuador to take scent descriptions um, from locals and the scientists. Guava tree, inga plant, algae, moss, lichen, decaying vegetation, mud, humidity, the smell of howler monkeys. It always reminds me of a cow pasture. And then a bell is rung and it ends the, the ceremony. I hope that by smelling this incense, it'll kind of connect people on maybe an emotional, a sensory level and um, yeah, try to bring it to life right there in front of you. To me, that is the type of ritual that we need. We need to create rituals of compassion, of awareness, of presence, of engagement with the natural world. We need to begin to recognize that this ritual that we have inadvertently adopted of being disconnected, desensitized from life through technology is one that we must let go of. Making time for human connection, making time for earth connection, 
that type of ritual can lead us to a place that's greater than we had ever imagined. Because we treat what we love differently. And so if we're going to be developing technology to save us, it needs to be that kind of technology. If you can make a ritual of falling in love with Mother Earth, imagine what that would do in five years, 10 years, 50 years. This is why we've created the Longtime Academy and all our practices to cultivate a culture, a new operating system that's infused with long-timeism. So, as a graduation guest and inspired by our visitors to the Academy, I've created a ritual to reconnect you to longer, deeper time whenever you need to. For this, you'll need something small that for you represents the long past, the long future, or time itself. It could be a pebble or anything else that you can hold in the palm of your hand and is meaningful to you. You'll find the ritual waiting for you, like all our long-time practices, in your podcast feed. And as all change starts with people coming together and committing to something on a regular basis, I really encourage you to find other people to get long time with. You can do that via our Longtime Academy community or with the people in your life. It was only through finding someone equally as excited about stretching time in my friend Beatrice that I was able to really turn these ideas into action. I can't wait to see what you go on to do, the conversations you might start, the things you might create and the change you might influence. come towards the end of our time together, I'd like to return to the place we first met, those old wild swimming ponds in the heart of London. I'd love to know, where were you at when you arrived at part one? What questions has our time together raised? What stayed with you? How has it affected the way you understand the past or experience the present? Or see your life as a whole? And how has it made you feel about the people who will be in the world long after you've gone? Whatever the answers to these questions, I hope this is the beginning of your long time journey. A journey that is longer than your lifetime. And so I wonder, how does time feel for you today? Thank you.
The Longtime Academy doors are always open at thelongtimeacademy.com. This is where you'll find loads of tools to help you cultivate longtimeism in your own life, ranging from the practices to workshops you can run within the organizations and communities you're part of. There, you can also find out more about the people you've met in this series, hear about our live events, connect with fellow students, and sign up to our Academy newsletter. Please share this episode with someone you think would be interested in getting long time. And thank you for being a part of the Academy and for coming on this journey with us. And thanks also to the incredible 40 strong faculty who've shared their wisdom. Much gratitude to the co-founder of The Longtime Project, Beatrice Pembroke, for being such an incredible collaborator. And finally, to my partner, Matt Golding, and my mum, Amanda Redstone, who've made The Longtime Academy possible through caring for baby soul whilst I've been working on this. You show me what an economy based on love and kindness looks like. The Longtime Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Longtime Project and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created, written and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh, with production and sound design from Ivor Manley, Madeline Finlay and Eli Block. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. This episode featured music by Eli Block and Jamie Patterson. Our series composer and sound designer is Tristan Cassell Delavoie, with original compositions by Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier. <laughs>